Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, we've talked on this show about how drugs and medicines are researched and developed by the U.S. government on the public dime, if you will, and then pharmaceutical companies get patents on them and sell them back to the public at literally life-altering or life-ending prices. If you thought that things would be different during a pandemic that has killed 800,000 people in this country, one of every 400 people, and more than 5 million worldwide, well, sadly, that means you might not quite understand the nature of the game. Willie Sutton reportedly robbed banks because that's where the money is. Moderna is seeking a sole patent for the COVID-19 vaccine they created in partnership with the National Institutes of Health because, as a source told the New York Times, quote, that could help the company justify its prices and rebuff pressure to make its vaccine available to poorer countries, close quote. We'll hear about that from Peter Maybarduk, Director of Public Citizens' Global Access to Medicines program. Also on the show, Aaron Swartz helped create the RSS protocol when he was 14. He was a founding figure behind SecureDrop, the Creative Commons licensing system, Open Library, Reddit, and the Civil Liberties Group Demand Progress. In the wake of his death in 2013, many groups vowed to push forward on Swartz's vision of citizens, regular people, unleashing data with entailed access and communicability in service of the public interest and the right to know. Tracy Rosenberg uses data to build bridges between those affected by policy and those that make it, particularly on questions of privacy, surveillance, and private or state encroachment on civil liberties. In other words, things you might not even know you need to know about. She's executive director at Media Alliance and co-coordinator at Oakland Privacy. We'll catch up with her today on Counterspin. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at recent press. After the 2021 elections in which Democrat Terry McAuliffe lost the closely watched Virginia governor's race to Republican Glenn Youngkin, many in corporate media coalesced around a set of lessons for Democrats. Question Biden's ambitious agenda, blame progressives, and disavow anti-racism. The thing is, that's the same lesson the elite media derive year after election year, regardless of outcome. Move to the right. The implication this time, as Julie Holler wrote for FAIR.org, is that Biden's social spending and infrastructure agenda are hurting the party, and the state and local election results show the public's displeasure with them. But the key provisions of the bill are highly popular, with recent polls putting support at 60 percent for the full $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill. That would seem like a better indication of the public's feelings about Biden's agenda than a particular governor's race steeped in misinformation around education. The agenda is being held up and watered down by corporate Democrats, particularly Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. But why temper a preferred ideological lesson with 
complicating information from actual people. Who lost on Election Day? Progressives, declared U.S. News. Progressives have a problem, Politico reported, as one of five things we learned from Republicans' big night. The Washington Post's Aaron Blake also took setback for the far left as a key election takeaway. Most of these pieces pointed to some combination of progressive losses in mayoral races in Buffalo and Seattle, centrist Eric Adams' mayoral win in New York City, and the defeat of a Minneapolis ballot measure to replace the troubled police department with a Department of Public Safety. Some acknowledged progressive victories, but they still didn't explain the decision to put the decisive narrative weight on losses. Despite new left-leaning mayors in Boston, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland, and the re-election of progressive district attorney Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Journalists might have highlighted the striking refusal of the state Democratic Party to support Buffalo's India Walton, a self-declared socialist, after she won the party's primary, or the immense amounts of money that poured into her opponent's campaign or the similar stacking of institutional weight against the Minneapolis measure. A differently inclined press corps, in other words, one that saw itself as the voice of those outside of power, could have focused energy on evidence of a public appetite for progressive policies, despite the energy and money established forces dedicate to defeating them. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The front page, November 10th, New York Times, told us Moderna moves for total credit in vaccine patent, won't share with U.S. It's an odd thing to read, but corporate news media often present readers with linguistic juxtapositions that accurately, if unwittingly, reflect deep questions about U.S. society. In this case, it's the fact that a private company is seeking to deny the involvement of the NIH in inventing the main component of its COVID-19 vaccine, with, as the paper notes, quote, broad implications for the vaccine's long-term distribution and billions of dollars in future profits, close quote. It's nice that the vaccine's life-saving capacity comes first in the phrase, before the billions to be made, but is that the priority of the process at work here? Joining us now by phone is Peter Maybarduk, Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program. Welcome back to Counterspin, Peter Maybarduk. It's great to be back. Well, very simply, what is Moderna claiming it did, and how does that comport with your understanding of the invention of this vaccine? Moderna says that it independently designed the sequence used in the NIH Moderna vaccine, what we might think of as the vaccine itself. NIH says the National Institutes of Health says that it sent over a sequence which Moderna plugged into its process. So it is a technical dispute regarding essentially authorship of the vaccine. Now, what's not in dispute is that the National Institutes of Health and Moderna have been partners in this process for several years. And it's important, but often overlooked. The National Institutes of Health are the world's leading funder of biomedical 
research with about $40 billion taxpayer dollars invested every year in products that are eventually sold largely under monopoly conditions by the pharmaceutical industry. In this case, federal scientists pioneered research into coronaviruses long before COVID-19. Recall that we had SARS and MERS and were aware that there was a coronavirus threat, and it was the federal government that pushed much of that research ahead and also played a role helping pioneer the various vaccine platforms, including mRNA, which has proved so effective. So in this case, we have a dispute over who is the inventor of the core patent at the heart of the world's most effective COVID-19 vaccine. And NIH and Moderna just don't agree. And we are now starting to get rumblings out of NIH that perhaps they will take this to the next level and seek a legal resolution. What we understand is that the company and, and the U.S. government have been fighting about this behind closed doors for a year now. Well, what is the meaningful impact? What would it, for instance, limit the U.S. government from doing if Moderna gets sole credit for invention here? And what would it allow Moderna to do? If the U.S. government is a co-inventor, it has more formal power as well as more informal leverage to insist on certain uses of the vaccine, to license the technology to more manufacturers worldwide to help scale up production, for example, or, and to your initial point, to insist on royalty payments to the government in exchange for Moderna's use of some of this publicly funded technology. The truth of the matter is that the NIH and the U.S. government actually has broader powers than just what are in this patent. And we believe and have said all along that the U.S. government, under its contract with Moderna, or under the Defense Production Act and the Bayh-Dole Act and other powers under existing law, has the power to share key vaccine information, license other producers, perhaps simply share the entire NIH Moderna vaccine recipe with the World Health Organization to see production scaled up and, and this key invention made available to all the world's people who so desperately need it. But there's no doubt that in reputational terms, in terms of the story that it's told, potentially in terms of dollars, this issue of who really invented the vaccine just has great salience and implications for what kinds of decisions the government makes about that power that we believe it has. Well, back in April, you said one of the greatest public health private profit tensions in this story is the value of vaccine recipes and vaccine technology. A company like Moderna isn't thinking only about the value of its mRNA vaccine, which you noted is actually an NIH publicly developed vaccine in partnership with Moderna, paid for by taxpayers over many years already. But they're thinking about the value of future products, which is just my way of saying I don't imagine that this twist in this story comes as a complete surprise to you. That's right. We've been tracking it for some time. And, and of course, U.S. government and, and Moderna have been fighting about it for some time. You know, worldwide, more than 10 million people so far have died as a result of the pandemic. And a core issue there is that there have not been enough vaccines to go around. And NIH Moderna is the people's vaccine or should be the people's vaccine, publicly funded, publicly pioneered public science leading the way and even running the clinical trials. Taxpayers paid for 99% of this vaccine's development. But Moderna is trying to turn this people's vaccine into a rich people's vaccine. It has been available 
primarily to wealthy countries, very few doses going to COVAX or to the global relief effort, and the technology not being shared with the World Health Organization or others that could build on it. So that's what's at stake. And from the beginning of the pandemic, unfortunately, the U.S. government's position has been to be extremely deferential to corporate interests. Rather than noting the scale of the crisis and noting the government's own involvement and saying, you know what, we are co-owners of this vaccine and we shall make it available to the world because the crisis calls for that. Our position always has been that the U.S. government can compensate Moderna for its investment and for its scientific engagements, but that we should not allow that humanity cannot afford for such an important medical tool to be held corporate confidential and limited in its rollout at this time. Well, uh, this is, I guess, you know, another point on that question. I mean, I, I do believe that for most people, protection from a fatal disease is not seen as like, you know, having a fancy car, you know, well, if you can't afford it, you just go without it. So it brings us back to an underlying question of private resourcing of public health. And the news coverage on this latest twist has had a sort of sub theme of this is so sad because the private public partnership on vaccines was like the holy grail, and now it's getting kind of messed up. The New York Times called it one of the few bright spots of the pandemic. And I get that, but I also hear, like, God forbid the state just do a thing on its own in the public interest, you know, because that would mean government worked and we can't have that, you know. And so the problem is being defined for those who think there's a problem as Moderna might get these billions, but if the U.S. got some of these billions, you know, it would go to the Treasury. And and the vision that calls up is drugs, life-saving drugs are a pot of gold, and private companies and governments are fighting over it. And that whole vision seems kind of effed up to me as a way to resource public health. Certainly more important is the government's responsibility for stewarding the technology that it is helping develop, for one. But also, even if the government hadn't developed this technology, simply recognizing the role of the world's most powerful government in a time of global crisis, if it were war, we would treat the technology differently. We would not allow any company's particular rights or investments to prevent us from developing the best defense technologies. So should it be in health, but we aren't there yet politically, and it's a corner that we desperately need to turn because so many people, of course, are dying in this case. Well, we've been speaking with Peter Maybarduk. He's director of the Global Access to Medicines program at Public Citizen. You can find them online at citizen.org. Peter Maybarduk, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. While an ethics fellow at Harvard, young programmer and activist Aaron Swartz downloaded articles en masse from the academic database JSTOR, triggering the aggressive pursuit of MIT's IT department and eventually what's been described as a grand jury runaway train gone off the rails, threatened with decades in prison and a seven-figure fine because, in the words of U.S. Attorney Carmen Ortiz, quote, stealing is stealing, whether you use a computer command or a crowbar, close quote, Swartz took his own life in 2013. 
After his death, it was revealed that he, in fact, had authorized access to JSTOR from MIT. The persecution of Aaron Swartz was a sign of the animus with which some system representing actors will go after relatively powerless individuals they choose to make examples of. It's also been taken up as a call to advance the demand to liberate data for regular citizens to be able to get the information they need to confront power and to have a say in decisions affecting them. Joining us now to talk about that work is Tracy Rosenberg, Executive Director of Media Alliance and co-coordinator of the group Oakland Privacy. Welcome back to Counterspin, Tracy Rosenberg. Thank you for having me. Well, Aaron Swartz wasn't alone in his concerns or values, and his projects and ideas persist, uh, including in work that you're involved in on public surveillance by police and the technology that facilitates and indeed drives that. You talked about it when we spoke a few years ago, back in 2018. Can you just catch us up on that project? Sure. Aaron Swartz Day, which people might or might not be familiar with, is an annual sort of hackathon dedicated to continuing Swartz's work to basically free the information in whatever interesting and exciting ways people can come up with to do that work. Some years ago, they reached out to us regarding how the hackathon could support policing and surveillance transparency work. And so the Aaron Swartz Day Police Surveillance Project was born. And among other things, it's filed hundreds of public records, requests, looking for information on surveillance equipment. And it has sued police and sheriff departments, uh, including in Sacramento, Fresno, and Long Beach. Our latest project is called the Bad Apple Database. And the reason for that name is the common idea that problems in policing are related to bad apples or just, you know, a small number of specific people. So the idea of the Bad Apple database was that we should identify who some of those bad apples are and how we can get them out of police. So Bad Apple has four basic parts. The first is we have a database of police oversight commissions throughout the country, which is now up to 178 entries. We have public records templates for requesting information on police misconduct and surveillance activities. We have a fully anonymous, super secure tip line, and we have a growing database of actual police misconduct and investigatory reports. Well, and I bet that private tip submission form has more privacy protection than, you know, the sort of crime stopper hotlines uh, that we see police <laughs> and media collaborating on in which they encourage people to sort of vigilante on their neighbors. Privacy is obviously a serious concern for people who are wanting to talk about wrongdoing on the part of law enforcement. Yes, it's important for people to understand that our anonymous tip line is so anonymous that, in fact, we don't even have people's IP information if they choose to use it. So I do have an announcement that's going to be formally made at Aaron Swartz Day this year, which will be at the Internet Archive on November 13th, which is we have produced 
an API for the Bad Apple database, which basically lets people take the information that we are collecting on that site and do interesting things. So for those who are tech-oriented, we think the API is a pretty exciting development. Mm -hmm. So basically, you can contact us and get an API key, and you can do that by writing to info at Bad Apple Tools or sending a direct message to at Aaron Swartz Day on Twitter. And what's that going to do exactly? What does that mean? Well, an API basically allows people to get into the back end of some of the data that we've collected and be able to manipulate it, move it around, express it in different ways. So you might, for example, create a heat map of where oversight commissions are located in the U.S. Or you may be able to use the public records template to issue a large amount of public records requests. Basically, it's a tool. And it's, you know, very much in the spirit of Aaron Swartz's work, which is to basically say this is public information that we should be able to use to advance policy goals. Let's get it out there in the public domain. Well, the backdrop of this work and the need for this work is the rise of urban mass surveillance, you know, or neighborhoods watched as a piece last month from the New Orleans Gulf Coast newsroom, The Lens, phrased it. Just to clarify for people who don't know, we're talking about surveillance technology being deployed widely in communities that sometimes even the elected officials don't know that law enforcement are using this technology. So this is really a matter about getting access to information that everyone in the community should know. Yes, that is absolutely correct. When it comes to surveillance technology, as we've, as we've said for years, it's a black box. The decisions are made by law enforcement. The implementation is done by police departments that by their own accounts are full of what we call bad apples. <laughs> and it's simply a fact that police misconduct records have been largely sealed. In California, we just passed laws in 2018, and again in 2020, SB 1421, followed by SB 16. In New York, I believe it's called Article 50. Is that correct, Janine? I'm not sure, but I think, okay. you know, it's news <laughs> for folks. Cause we should learn, right? Yep. Absolutely. But it's a similar sort of legislation that for a long time made it extremely hard to access police misconduct records. And we're talking about sustained findings that cops are doing things wrong. And the reality is we can talk about bad apples all day and all night, but there needs to be, you know, action in identifying problematic cops doing problematic things and getting them off the force because these are public servants and we can't have these positions filled with bad apples that are dangerous to people. Can't do it. Well, I've perhaps conflated two things because in addition with the bad apple, which is about tracking police misconduct and records, which are often not shared, part of the work is also about tracking the equipment and the tools Mm -hmm. that police are and law enforcement are allowed to use that they maybe have got from the federal government. Things like facial recognition, license plate readers that listeners may have heard of that are being deployed by law enforcement in their communities in ways that, as I say, sometimes not even the elected officials know about. That's kind of a different arm of this work, but it's also relevant. 
what links it together is the issue of transparency. And transparency is a tool by which we capture both the scope and the extent of surveillance activity, the scope and extent of police misconduct, and the ways in which when things go wrong, it is hidden from the public. As we know, internal affairs is a black box, right? Nobody knows what happens. And surveillance technology, and again, what's being bought, what's being deployed, where is it being used, and how is it being used, is also a black box. So what we're basically trying to do is provide tools for people to do the kind of digging and uncovering that open privacy. And Aaron Swartz Day have been doing for years and years, because the reality is these are small groups and they can't be everywhere like the problem is. The problem is kind of everywhere. So it's really about giving people tools so they can do this kind of work in their own communities. And so we can basically reach transparency critical mass, which is not going to happen just from one handful of folks doing it in one place. It's going to happen from organized, coordinated activities all over the country. Thank you. And let me just say finally that these accountability tools are first and foremost, and most importantly, tools for citizen engagement, you know, for citizens to learn and then take action. But they are also journalistic resources. There's got to be a committed relationship, if you will, between openness advocates and journalists. And so what would you like to see reporters taking up with regard to this set of issues? Well, I definitely think that has been sort of growing over the years, Mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful development Mm -hmm. to see. I think certainly in past years, there was some tension there between citizens who took it upon themselves to do transparency work and the media themselves. But that is starting to change. And there's sort of two different parts of this. One is that journalists themselves can use these kinds of tools and can do this kind of work. And there's a great deal of journalists who have really stepped into that space. And secondly, the press is a way to amplify what's found. Because yes, you can have a treasure trove of documents that you've uncovered, but if that information doesn't get out to the community at large and its value in terms of sort of changing policy and actions being taken is kind of limited. So the press have an enormous role in basically partnering with transparency advocates to basically say, give me what you've got so we can put it on the television, so we can put it in the newspaper, so we can send it out in our subscription email, so we can make sure that everybody knows what has been uncovered here, what it means, the context for it, and what actions should happen as a result. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Tracy Rosenberg. She's from Media Alliance and Oakland Privacy, as well as a number of other groups. Tracy Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.